Hey guys, I hope you're loving the Making Bank episodes. Please make sure you guys like and share these episodes as well as comment below for the guests. They love to come back and interact with you. And I really appreciate you watching and listening to Making Bank. So thank you. You are are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Excited for today's guest, Jeremy Wise. Tim Kennedy, Jeff Fenster, Jesse Krieger, Joe Valley, Rich Sheffrin, Gary Brecka. So you're, you're a chiropractor, right? And so what really kind of got you that passion, that inspiration on that entrepreneurial journey? Because you don't see, like you have chiropractors and yeah. that's what they're really good at. But then, then you, you have some that cross over and then you have some that are really good entrepreneurs as well. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, as far as starting my own business, um, you know, I always kind of had that, um, you know, from growing up selling things, but I think, sure. um, later on, you know, just, you find yourself, I found myself working in a couple positions and I always wanted to make tweaks and improve things. Okay. And then you don't have the control right. to do it. Like, you know, like yourself, you're always into optimizing productivity and you could see things, how they can be done sure. uh, a better way. And so, you know, after a little while, you realize, well, you just have, you know, I just venture out and do it that better way. So it's not always easy because, you know, you are taking the risk and, right. and um, you're putting it on the line. You know, if you don't uh, get patience or you don't sell something, then you don't eat. So right. it becomes motivating <laughs> to learn all the marketing and uh, online and offline. Cool. Yeah. And so what do you, you know, for your, your practice and everything, what have you found that's worked really well? I mean, because obviously you do, you know, in different marketing aspects and things like that to drive patients in, but also following up and making sure, you know, you provide the yeah. best solutions for yeah. them and everything else. One, thir- one thing that's worked really well, I mean, obviously um, using automation to communicate uh, okay. with patients. So, sure. you know, obviously the, the email marketing or even text message marketing. Okay. So. One thing is people think it's got to be really complicated. You have to set up this web page and set up these funnels. And for us, it's really just coming with giving a patient specifically what they want. So when a patient calls in um, to you know to book an appointment, we sure. want to send them the uh, location of the office. So automating the things that you're you're you find yourself repeating on a daily mm-hmm. basis or weekly okay. basis. So those are the things we look at. How do we automate? So someone who wants the office location, and this could be applied to any business, of right. course, it, you just get frequently asked questions, um, and their appointment time. So what we did was we just kept, you know, we just manually actually enter in their, their email into the autoresponder sequence. Sure. We don't make them opt in. It's like, okay, your name, your email, and then that automatically puts them on our list. Sure. And we tell them, you're gonna be getting an email, um, and then that sends them the, all the, the, the things that yeah. they're going to ask anyway. So, okay. you know, we manually do it, but then you know, that's one thing. So not to overcomplicate the technical side right. of things. And then, you know, from there we communicate with the newsletter and, and health and everything else. So it's just um, automating the things that we repeat over and over again. What was one of your biggest challenges and what did you learn from it? You know, through your business, through your life, whatever. Let's see. Been. That's a good question. Big challenge. I mean, 
Sort of, I learned one thing is to take control. Um, one big challenge I remember early on with the, uh, there's a lot of big, I mean, there's a lot of challenges. Every day is a challenge. Sure. I mean, yesterday we, for our party, we had we were trying to find a Moana, and that took three hours. But um, that's a minor challenge. But, um, you know, one of the things was, I remember when I was practicing, and the guy who owned the building just, he didn't really give me a lot of notice, okay. sold the building, and so I had to really, for me, it's redundancy, so always having uh, a backup plan. Okay. Uh, but it was a challenge at the time. I was looking for space just because I'm always keeping my fingers, just in case. Like, just I'm right. paranoid. Expansion. You know, as an entrepreneur, I feel like yeah. my one of my strongest skills is being paranoid that something's <laughs> going to happen. So I put a redundancy <laughs> in place. And so I was looking for space. There was no reason. I right. was just like, just I don't have control of that fully. Sure. And so I was looking for space. And um, they basically like, yeah, you got to get out of here in like 60 days. And you know, that's your business, right? right. And brick and mortar, you've had brick and mortar. Oh, yeah. um, and so I was luckily had been looking and I was looking to buy a space because I didn't want someone to have control sure. over my destiny. And so in, it was a huge challenge because I had to move out um, in 60 day time. Luckily, I was working on, a, working on something in the background um, but I had to get out, and so what I did was they kicked me out um, on a Saturday. I, I didn't want to shut down any one day of patient Without, care, yeah. so they shut me down on Saturday. I got the moving truck, and I had the, I got some you know developers that just sped up the construction at the place I got, and as soon as Saturday <laughs> night, all day Sunday, we I got like five people, friends, whoever, and we just moved all the equipment and Monday morning we were ready, we were ready for business nice. but that I mean I was stressed beyond belief for that well, that whole couple months and uh, so yeah just big challenges but I try and keep redundancy in place cool yeah a redundancy that's a good yeah. I mean I think that's a yeah. good takeaway for sure from yeah that. Uh, and then maybe just one last uh, insider advice or something from for from you for our audience big thing for me is I'm always trying to learn and I'm learning from you know so for me I use audible personally um, mm -hmm. and I listen to like three to six books per week and so just learning different aspects just learning from other people and what they're doing because sure. they spent the time and years like some people are pouring 30, 40 years of their career into this book, and then I get to listen to it for three and three to four hours or right. five hours. I'm gleaning all of this, their big mistakes and their successes. So I think the biggest That's takeaway awesome. for me is, I mean, listening to your podcast, same thing. Like right. you're gleaning from some of the top minds and just learning from them. So sure. for me, it's just either subscribe to your podcast, <laughs> some of the good podcasts out there, and go on Audible and just consume um, what other people have done before us. Awesome. And do you listen to it two or three times? Speed? Two, two and a half two times. Nice. Speed, yes. So that's another hack. <laughs> exactly. You can do that on Audible. That's right. Start if, and if you're saying you, you have to start a little slower, yeah. then you're wrong because Josh does it. I do two and, you, and a half you, times. You, yeah, yeah. You, get one and a, you go to one and a half, then you go to two, then you go to two and a half, and you just... Yep. You know, Your brain just starts to. It, it start, it, two and a half seems like, oh, it's normal speed. When you go to one and a half, it starts fast at first, but yeah. then... It seems slow, and then you keep keep bumping it up. Cool. Yeah. Obviously, you own multiple other businesses and everything, and kind of being the the guy that's here and, and doing that. How do you manage your time? Because obviously, you're like, cool, we got four o'clock, and you're busy, and you got things happening. 
and then you got family and you got to spend time with family and then run, would you say a dozen businesses now? So a dozen businesses. I mean, I know I've owned 15 companies since I was 14 years old. So I know from a time blocking and different things like that that I've utilized, but I'm curious what you do and how you've applied that. I could pull out like some program apps that we use for you know time efficiency stuff and um, even our organizational and task management and task organization, you know, we, we, I have it right here, in which is attached to me 24 seven. Um, I'm okay. vertically organized in an in inverted pyramid with um, the dissemination of power down to the lowest level, where okay. I want the first, the, the, with clear communication and a clear direction, knowing the end state and knowing what their lane is, they don't need oversight. I know that sounds groundbreaking, right? right? But they don't. Sure. And, and anytime that you are injecting yourself into an individual's work. Like if they're doing the right stuff, can I come in here and like make small adjustments? Absolutely. Or can any portion of their chain of command, right. any of their management come in there and make adjustments? Absolutely. But do I have to get in there? No. I want to be I want to have it disseminated to the lowest level where I can just take my hands off and let them go. And so there's a, there's a huge degree of that where I have trust where I'm putting in the right people. But then on my part, you know, at the top there's there's kind of like the executive team. And from that from that executive suite going down, I have an executive director, Justin Lake, and I know that's a mm. a nonprofit term, but we run a lot of our companies like a military organization, like a nonprofit. Okay. And um, so he, as the executive director, has the same authority as me. And then underneath him, he has directors. And each okay. of those directors for Sheepdog Response, we have a director of training. He's the highest. So all of the other things fall underneath the director of training because the most important thing in that business is the is training. training. Sure, gotcha. we have products. You know, sure we provide services, um, security services, uh, escort services, um, armed services. All of those things. And not the not the escort services. <laughs> yeah, like a bunch of dudes in black with black cars right. that are bulletproof and machine guns. That kind of escorting. Yes. So, and you know, from we're coming out with our own slings, our own gun belts, our own magazine pouches. But like, the most important thing is our training. Sure. So, like, the most important person is the director of training. Right. So he's the one that sits at the top, and everybody else falls underneath them. Okay. So that's how everything is. So, like, what is the center of gravity for that company? And then the person that is the most important in that is going to be the manager of everything else. Gotcha. Okay. Um, a lot of companies, I think, do it backwards, where they take the role first. And they take that role and put a leadership person in there. Sure. But that person, first and foremost, needs to know what is the most important thing that they do, whether it's a product or a service. Right. We're training for that. Yeah, for that company. Yeah. Or that yeah, yeah. That you're doing. No, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, from a training standpoint, then that would disseminate down. And like one question is: so you have this person down here, and they're doing X, Y, and Z. How do you get them, or I guess, how do you know that they're doing the right thing? Or, yeah. or how, how do you know you're hiring that right person to do that right thing and that's what they're going to focus on? Yeah. A people, plan, and purpose. Okay. Those are like the three things that I'm, I'm always looking for. So people, like the, the culture, the personality, the energy, the positivity. Right. Like you just look at the person. You, you look a lot of, about them. Are they fit? Do you know, is there, is there mustache, like all topsy-turvy? <laughs> you know, if like... Do they take care of themselves? Do they take care of their car? Do they have take care of their hands or their like? Just right. looking at a person, you get a lot. You know, it's it's tragic. When do you ever look at like the mug shots from the protests? I've seen them. Yeah. 
Actually, they I just saw the ones from Disney that you posted. All the, another great like, example. The trafficking. Yeah, a whole bunch of Disney. human traffickers like, and pedophiles. <laughs> do did any of those images of those people look like good people? <laughs> no, right? They yeah. look like trash. You're like, yeah, I can see how they could all be 100%, part of that. Right? But how did they get in Disney? You right. know what I mean? <laughs> or you you pull up from like Portland, Oregon, from like one of the protests, right? And you look at a hundred different moke shots, and you're like, woo, these yeah. people have problems. Um, whether it's mental health issues or drug problems sure. or you know whatever it is, like clearly just that person. So there's the first one, the per- the people. The people, right? Purpose is um, does their purpose align with my purpose? Mm. Um, do they need to agree with me in politics? Absolutely not. Right. You know, do they need to um, have the same philosophy or religious perspective as me? No. But do they have the same purpose as me? Mm. And uh, and with every company we have a clear purpose. And actually there's this big Venn diagram and all of my companies right in the center of it is like my purpose. And everything okay. that I do is connected to my purpose. That's to protect and preserve human life and expand freedom. Right. That's what I was put on this planet to do. And like if I'm not doing those things, then I'm doing something wrong. Sure. And I know what happens when I do wrong things. Like when I look, start looking at the dollar signs or I start looking at you know the pretty ring girl, any of those moments, right. I'm moving away from my circle. You know, and I have to stay in my circle for things to stay right. Right. Um, so I got the purpose, I have the people, and then I have the plan. Okay. So like what, when I'm doing an interview and I just hired a new executive assistant, and I said, what is your plan for me? How are you going to do me better? How are you going to make my life simpler? How are you going to, what is your plan? Sure. You know, and like in two seconds, they either came in with a plan or they're shooting from the hip and they didn't have one. You know, and like if you're walking into an interview for a position and you didn't come in with a plan, that is going to be a testament to all of the other things that you're going to do. Right. Right. Like, um, so I use this color coordinated calendar and um, for stuff specific to you, it's going to be, you know, in this, you know, in your business deals, it's going to be this entrepreneurial philanthropic, it's going to be this, your travel is going to be this. And I was like, hmm. Legit, you know. Uh, cool. Like, all right, this works. <laughs> this, yeah. Um, maybe maybe it's not the best plan, but you had At a least plan. You had something, right? Yeah, for sure. And so, like, uh, man, in, when my wife and I were first investing in businesses, we used the same model. Okay. Do you have a plan? You as a purpose, mm. and what is you as a person? Right. You know, and and we did really, really, really well investing just off of that three criteria. Um, let me see your business plan. Let me look at you as a person, and then what is your purpose? Mm. Interesting. Your purpose is money. Yeah. You know, your your purpose is to have a cool car and to have the notoriety of being a CEO of this company, or hey, I'm gonna go public. You know, our IPO is gonna be in, you know, blah blah blah. I'm gonna sell it. I'm gonna exit at this. Is like, homie. <laughs> You're like not for me. That's not purpose, <laughs> right? What do you think that's purpose? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how. I guess when when did you initially get started as an entrepreneur? As a kid, kind of was it after college? Uh, kind of fill us in there. Sure. So I think it's a great question, and and I'll, I, I'll answer it by defining what entrepreneur means to me, and I think that will help. But for me, entrepreneurship is all about problem solving, and ultimately, we're big problem solvers. And when you're a problem solver, you just find solutions, and as a result, that in today's world leads to companies and uh, potentially, right? And right. so for me, I never thought of being an entrepreneur. That word wasn't even kind of used in society when I was growing up. And 
Uh, I went to college at University of Arizona. I went to law school to be a sports agent and had a job lined up with Lee Steinberg Sports Agency and was graduating law school at 24 years old, thinking I was going to do this whole career. And back then it was business owners and employees, but there was no yeah. entrepreneur. So I was like, oh, no, you're going to work for a while. And then eventually you might buy the company or uh, start one family business. But it wasn't like entrepreneurship like we think of that term today. And so when I graduated law school, I actually had a, a young daughter and a fiance and ultimately decided not didn't want to travel the world representing grownups. I wanted to be a present dad. So I got a job uh, after law school selling payroll services for ADP, the payroll company. Sure. Uh, was there six months and my first six months there was fortunate to build a pretty big business inside their company. And I was the number one sales rep in the country, first to make President's Club and made a lot of money and uh, was a rock star there getting all these awards and recognition. And so I thought, hey, I'm going to be a career ADP guy. This was perfect. And um, it was February of uh, January of 2008. And I had earned a $17,000 bonus for the year. And keep in mind, I've seven months, eight months out of law school. I have a fiance, a daughter. I just bought a house. I have law school loans. So I needed the money, like seven right. grand. And it was a lot of money. And this was uh, um, really important. So I went to my boss in January and I said, hey, I'd like my 17 grand. And my boss informed me it was an annual bonus. I had to wait to the end of the fiscal year, which wasn't until the end of June. So I'd get it in July. And that moment, I just had this crushing sense of like, Mid, like depression because I was like my whole life I'm going to be waiting for someone else to give me the bonus or the opportunity even if I earn it and that's what I loved about sales in general was I go out I hunt if I am successful in the sale I get rewarded with compensation and I could dictate my own financial outcome and so when that was taken from me at least in my head um, I went home that night and talked to my fiance and said listen I know we just moved into our new house what if I quit my job, we sell the house and the th us and my daughter move in with my parents and I start my own payroll company because FADP. And, right. um, <laughs> and she was supportive. Uh, she said, yeah, you know, if that's going to make you happy, you know, yeah, we, we'd been in our house like three months. Like it was pretty brand new. And sure. I was like, I just couldn't, I didn't know what I was doing and she was supportive. And so I went in the next day, I threatened to quit if they didn't give it to me and they called my bluff and I quit and sold the house and we moved in with my mom and dad. And with a buddy, I started my first payroll company out of my mom's kitchen called iChex in 2008, simply because I wasn't going to wait for, for that. And that was kind of the birth of my entrepreneurship. You know, what's, you're just thinking, oh man, I was hoping Josh wanted to go down this path or ask me this, but we got way over here. What's just kind of one last thing you really want to leave everybody with that you've been wanting to share? Or maybe you haven't shared somewhere else that you're like, oh, this is great. I need to get this out there and, and get sure. it in people's hands. So the number one excuse I hear that drives me absolutely crazy is I don't have time. And um, I have two kids, a 16-year-old and a 10-year-old and a business, three businesses and travel a lot. And uh, I'm going to give everyone a little life hack. It's basically the power of four minutes. But the average snooze button is eight minutes long. So what I'm about to tell you times two. But if you take four minutes a day and do something, at the end of a year, that's 24 hours of time. So you can literally learn a new language in 24 hours of study. And that's four minutes a day for 365 days is 24 hours. And so if you stop hitting snooze even once, that's two full days a year that you can regain, even if you just allocate those four minutes or those eight minutes to whatever it is you're trying to sharpen your skills on, learn, advance yourself, because you have to be learning because the world's always changing, even in your business. Don't, don't become tired. One of the reasons that 
I've been able to penetrate new markets with zero experiences because most people in the industry are doing it the exact same way they've always done it. And they're lost in the forest for the trees because they've been living it for too long. And I can come in with fresh eyes. So use those four to eight minutes a day. And all of a sudden you're going to find that you're honing new skills and really learning new things. And the I don't have time thing will go away and you'll, you'll see serious advancement. So let's kind of dive in a little bit. Um, tell me what got you started as an entrepreneur. Well, I mean, in one way or another, I've, I've actually never had a normal job. Um, that went from playing music on the streets of Europe to having a band and a record label at age 21, my first business, um, to ultimately leaving music after a number of years and going into consulting and eventually starting online businesses. <clears throat> and it was the combination of starting businesses and traveling the world for months of the year that led to writing my book, uh, Lifestyle Entrepreneur, mostly because people were asking, like, what is your approach to life? You've started businesses in unrelated industries. You're in China, <laughs> you're in Europe. Like, what's going on? And it all seemed very normal to me in the sense that it didn't seem too out there or extreme. But I did take the time to document, like, what is my approach for real to business and life? That was what became the book, and that catalyzed the whole last eight or nine years of uh, of life. It was really a pivot point. The being an operator and starting different businesses and and just doing it for the sake of being able to travel and have a fun lifestyle definitely took on a different tone as an author. And then being on media and teaching other people how to do it and creating educational content and ultimately now publishing and working with a number of authors, it's been a fun run. Uh, but to answer your question, I think I've got it from day one. Like it was in the blood. <laughs> it was in the blood. So the record, the record label was your kind of your first entrepreneurial kickoff then. Yeah. So we were starting to play out as a as a duo and then a band. Band was called Harsh Krieger. It's on Spotify, YouTube. It's all still out there. Um, spoiler alert. But yeah, we lived on Music Row, um, raised some money, formed a company. I volunteered. Hey, if we Instead of signing with a record label or trying to pursue like getting a manager and having somebody else sign us, which back in 2003, four, five, like everybody wanted a record deal. Like who's going to sign us as a rock band and put us on MTV. But we took this other approach of, well, if we hire the manager, if we hire a booking agent, if we executive produce our own album, then at least we've got a chance at making a career instead of being at the end of somebody else's like, you know, whim. Um, so that was it. That was it. The, the the business started by virtue of needing something to advance our music career further. And we raised 125,000 bucks, had a little board of advisors from some experienced um, entrepreneurial friends of my father and then others that I met along the journey and ultimately got a distribution deal through Sony's independent record distribution arm and toured America twice uh, in a van and trailer, played shows in over 10 states and got our, our music is still out there. So it was cool in a way that, you know, my first real go at entrepreneurship, there are some indicators of success. It was also a crazy, insane amount of work and just emotional roller coaster uh, the mm. first time around. Turns out entrepreneurship's always kind of a roller coaster, but you always remember the first one. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
No, that's awesome. What did you kind of take away then from that first business that you've applied moving forward, you know, as with other companies that you've launched that uh, helped you kind of shortcut that or kind of streamline the uh, challenges and hurdles? Yeah, I think one of the big takeaways was on the theme of just going for it. Like at 21 years old, I had people 10 years older working for me and us, but really it was me because my bandmates were like, you do the business. That's our condition to not pursue a record label. So I was the one doing a lot of it. So I learned like, if I volunteer to take on the responsibility, then I can make something happen. Like for real. Sure. I learned that by speaking up and going for it, like you don't need permission. Or I used to think I needed permission until I just started Mm. pitching people ideas and talking about our band. And someone says, that's interesting. I say, Hey, you know, you can invest in us too. They're like, Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) Hey, now you do. So just by like having conversations that some people might think would be brash or uncomfortable, but doing it politely and presenting a real opportunity is worth its weight in gold. I mean, on the theme of making bank, like I've made a lot of bank by just opening my mouth and asking for what I want and then giving a real compelling reason why it's in both of our best interest. So like if you can make that case for for what you want and if you can if you can make somebody else see the value in backing your idea, that's a great skill to have. That's one, that's one for sure. One takeaway. Yeah, no, that's huge. I think that's uh, super important uh, as entrepreneurs. We, you know, you got to be able to definitely speak up and to, you know, you never know when that next person that, like you said, either wants to fund your business to, you know, there, or that may, maybe that deal that, you've been waiting for that, uh, you know, you need that cash flow <laughs> to keep you going. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's that, it's that last person oh, you happen I mean, to mention something to, right? Yeah. On, on cash, like here's a fun one, like not taking, uh, not, not, not taking no for an answer, but rather in the absence of a no, assuming a yes. So like I was pitching one investor, I think over 20 times and they're like, Oh, it sounds interesting what you're doing, but it, we're not ready yet. I was like, so you're not saying no. They're like, no, no, we're not saying no. So I kept following up. Here's what we're doing now. Check out our new song. Hey, we're playing a show in Georgia. Now we're doing this. And eventually on the side of a road in New Mexico on call number like 42, they're like, okay, we're in for 10,000. Yeah. (laughs) So I still have this visual of standing in the desert, bandmates in the car, like, what is he yelling about? And I was like, they said yes. (laughs) So... (laughs) You know, that was persistence paying off, like literally 21 years old on the side of a road on the 40th call with a potential investor. And then they said, yes, great. Um, But those are the little snippets that all add up to like, you know, the whole the whole epic journey. (laughs) For sure. So what I mean, as entrepreneurs, you know, and, and that are watching this, you know, what are some of the things, I mean, they may have not thought, oh, hey, I want to go sell my business. You know, that may not be like on the forefront, but because they love what they're doing, they're just focused on that. But one day it may come to fruition where they're like, oh, hey, I want to, I'm, I'm old or I want to sell it and go do something else. What are some of the things as an entrepreneur that we need to start looking for or start uh, setting up in our business to be ready for that? Yeah. First and foremost, accept the fact that you're going to exit your business someday. People say, I love it. I'm never going to sell. 
okay, but you're going to exit your business someday. You are going to die. You're not going <laughs> right. to live forever. You're going to pass it on to your kids. Your partnership's going to break up. You and your wife, you and your husband, you're going to get a divorce. Somebody's going to die. Something's going to happen that you're going to exit your business. So if you want to make the use, the best use of what you've built, get some education, get some training. And, and, and that's why I wrote, and we talked about holding this up. It's the entrepreneur's playbook. Uh, but But really... What people should be doing, first and foremost, is accepting that they are going to exit someday and then setting some goals. And the goals that I like to set involve dollars and dates. And the last thing is kind of weird, but feelings, because, you know, the feelings are important. Because when I talk to somebody after they close the business, I said, so, so how are you feeling? Um, it's not about the zeros that they have in their bank account. Usually the response is, I feel an incredible burden lifted off my shoulder. And it's because they sold the business because it outgrew them to the point where um, they promoted themselves to their own level of incompetence. And if they kept the business much longer, it was going to turn down. Or they built it to $20 million, but they knew they couldn't take it to $100 million, but it could go there. So dollar, state, and feeling. And, and the feeling needs to be something like the whole thing needs to be, uh, I'm going to sell my business for $5 million in Q1 of 2023. And when I do, I'm going to feel unburdened because I'll have money in the bank no stress, and I can spend more time with my family. And the feelings part is critically important because we all have very tough days, weeks, and months, and sometimes years as entrepreneurs. If you right. have written goals that involve those feelings, it will help you get over those tough days, weeks, months, and years much easier. So once you've done that part of it, you have to figure out how close or how far you are from that goal dollar-wise. And then you've got to reverse engineer a path to that. So you've got to figure out what your your business is, is actually worth today. Uh, you can get 80% of the way there in the book. If you've got an online business, I don't do brick and mortar stuff. So if it's an okay. online business, you'll get 80% of the way there. Um, and that's pretty close, but you'll learn. Most people don't understand even the basic formula of uh, how businesses are valued, right? It's a multiple of what's called seller's discretionary earnings. It's not EBITDA. It's not adjusted EBITDA. It's seller's discretionary earnings. And these are generally owner-operated businesses with you know, a few employees or staff of maybe 10 or 15 tops. Um, so it's a multiple of that. Seller's discretionary earnings to keep it light and not go too deep in the weeds, Josh, is net income on your P&L plus add backs and one-time expenses. Right. That equals seller's discretionary earnings. Now, the challenge in calculating seller's discretionary earnings is first understanding and knowing how to do it. It's all in the book, but um, most people and most being 51% of the people that I talk to at least don't actually operate their business with QuickBooks or zero. If it's a owner operator type of situation, it's them, a bank account, a credit card, and a napkin. And I've seen that happen with businesses that are, you know, doing five or 10 million in revenue. Sure. So you gotta, you gotta get some real bookkeeping done and get your financials in good order. That's really step number two or three. Right. Um, and you've got to use accrual accounting. Most people don't even understand the difference between cash and accrual. And I don't blame them. I fell asleep in accounting class. But you got to understand the difference in, in, in accrual and accounting. You've got to get a firm grasp on your P&Ls because the business that you're investing your life savings into, all your time into, is probably your most valuable asset. But if you don't have P&Ls to pay attention to, if you don't spend time every month analyzing them and understanding what the true value of your most valuable asset is, you're, you're definitely not going to exit someday uh, for the price you want uh, at the time you want for the, for the buyer, uh, to the buyer that you want.
I want to definitely kind of dive in and see what you're seeing and how what you're learning about we can apply and start to utilize and other businesses that are watching this can start to figure out, hey, man, I better be aware of this and start to pay attention. Okay. So, um, yeah, along those lines, what I would just say right out of the gate and uh, is about data. Data, like what people really need to understand is that data is like going to be the new currency. And right now, most entrepreneurs do not even possess their own data. Like they have, like if they're advertising on Facebook, that data is in Facebook. They lose that account, all that data is gone. And so right. they don't, and data in isolation is a lot less valuable than data aggregated, right? Like when you bring data together, you get more insight. Uh, in addition to that, where real, like, you know, if we look at the internet on a very like high level, right? Like, and look at like, what are the big changes that are certain to happen? Not possibly gonna happen, certain to happen. Uh, one of the big things that's going to happen is, is that advertising is going to shift from context to identity. In other words, like when we for ever since advertising has begun, like if I want to get wealthy investors, I could go advertise on Barron's. Right. And it's going to be expensive to advertise on Barron's, but they have that audience. Right. So I'm, that's context. Right. Go to the context where people are. Identity is totally different. Identity is I know who those wealthy investors are and I don't need to advertise on Barron's where it's expensive. I could advertise on a porn site. I could advertise anywhere where those people go and it doesn't I even need to know where they go. All I need to know is the identity. Right. So I'll leave. I'll end this little point with like a quote from Forrester. Uh, Forrester, which I think everyone should have some decent respect for Forrester Research. Uh, one of the top research companies out there. Companies who effectively master AI will steal $1.2 trillion per year from those who don't. And that's what's gonna happen. And three more quotes just to kind of wrap it up on that. Uh, Bill Gates says, a breakthrough in machine learning would be worth 10 Microsofts, right? This is the guy, like, it's pretty impressive. Um, if Elon Musk says, if, you're, if your competitor is rushing to build AI and you don't, it will crush you. And Mark Cuban says uh, that the first trillionaire will be for sure an entrepreneur who's working with artificial intelligence. And so, and I could give you, I could rattle out more quotes about like billionaires saying this is the thing that's going to get people wealthy. So we're about to enter into a time where the, the opportunity is more profound for greater success than ever before. But it's also going to be a time where more small businesses go out of business than ever before. And what people do now is really going to determine which side they end up on. No, and that's you know super interesting because I know a good friend of mine, Naveen Jain with Viome, they're doing a lot of AI machine learning you know, from a gut health level and analyzing people that have great gut health and this and then trying to compare it and show those offsets and everything. So. And I know they're rapidly growing and building that specific piece of it. So he's basically giving away the test to build the machine learning AI brain of it. Yeah. And, and just along those lines, like one of the things that like entrepreneurs need to be really careful about, um, there's no problem in testing any platform, like just to see if something works. Right. But if that platform is not giving you the data, real problem. Right. So like, um, I know like so at Agora like we're testing out some new push notification system, right? Like the push notification not mobile, but actually the website where that little thing comes up Right, but most of the companies that do that do not like that data It stays with them the day you end the relationship with them have that data. So you never get that data um, 
it, that's less than ideal, right? Like a lot of chatbot companies also, the chats are improving their AI, but you're not getting that data and you're not therefore being able to train your own AI. So you become totally dependent on them and your data never gets any better, right? So like if I wanted to do chat, yeah, maybe I would start with a platform like that because I just want to see if it works. But as soon as I knew it worked, I need to get that off that platform and onto a platform where I get to at least get the data, right? And just the last point on that is, is that entrepreneurs should also be careful of uh, things that say they're AI. If there's no direct connection and feedback loop to the thing that they're getting from it, like if, it, if AI gives me a subject line and there's no way for AI, the AI that I just got that subject line to know my open rates, then there's no AI, there's no feedback loop, there's no improvement, there's no machine that's developing a better algorithm for better prediction. And so that's not really AI. And there's a ton of tools out there today that are being marketed to entrepreneurs that they say they're AI, when really they may be AI in some weird derivative way, but not in the way that we're talking about here, where it's going to improve your performance over time and help you convert more, sell more, attract more, make more, right? So it's just, they have to be careful. You are not your business. If your business needs like something, the idea that then you're going to go out and study it is stupid if that's not the best alternative for the business. Right? If the business needs that skill set, like really, like you going out and learning that skill set is probably pretty low down on the list of the best way to get the fastest difference and the increase in performance, right? So it's the separation that I'm not my business, right? And so my business can not, doesn't need to have the problems I have, doesn't need to like operate in the world the way I do, and that's a good thing. And and then recognizing like, okay, so this business is a separate thing. What's the how? What's best for the business? Not what's best for me. What's best for the business, and how can it really thrive? And since I own the business, I'm going to be okay, right? Like so, but how can the business do the best with with or without? Tell us a little bit about. What got you down this path and, and what got you uh, diving into um, health and wellness? Well, you know, I, I uh, my undergraduate degrees are, I'm, I'm a human biologist by trade. So my undergraduate degrees are in biology. My postgraduate degrees are in human biology and neuroscience. And after I got out of grad school, my second four-year stint in grad school, I went to work for the insurance industry as a mortality expert. And so what we were charged with was predicting mortality to the month because you know anytime a life insurance company issues a life insurance policy on your life especially a large life insurance policy five million ten million twenty five million dollar policy which is the large life division i worked in the the only thing that matters is one variable right how many more months do you have left on earth <laughs> right because that determines your premium. <laughs> yeah, we got 10 years of medical records on you and 10 years of demographic data. We could tell the insurance company how long you had to live to the month. And, you know, that was amazing work. And, you know, the database that I had access to at 370 million lives, it's the largest population database in the world. I always say that if that database could see the light of day, it would permanently change the face of humanity. Mm -hmm. It would. Uh, just upend modern medicine in a way that would be catastrophic. Unfortunately, it never will see the light of day because the insurance companies are the polar opposite of Google and Facebook, right? They collect voluminous amounts of information, but they don't share it back with any. And the downside of, of that career was that um, I was not allowed to have any contact with the patient or any contact with the treating physician. So even if I saw life-threatening drug interactions, I couldn't warn the patient. And so it felt like I was sitting behind a thick glass wall 
just kind of watching blind people walk into traffic. And the level of misdiagnosis and, you know, simple fixes that people could have instituted in their life that would have added seven years to their lifespan, not just their lifespan, but their health span, was astounding to me. And one day I, I literally woke up and I just realized that there were human beings on the other side of these spreadsheets and it wasn't just data. And I made a conscious decision to resign from that industry and spend the balance of my lifetime helping people live healthier, happier, longer lives. And, you know, anytime I speak or, or take the stage or do a lecture or a talk or, you know, I do a physician's group, I, I make two bold promises. One is that if you just listen to what I have to say, I will add seven years to your lifetime, not just seven years to your lifetime, but seven years to the health span of your lifetime. And then secondly, because one of the things that we discovered in the mortality space was, uh, you know, if, if, if I was sort of to boil my entire career, 22 years in, in the study of mortality down to a single sentence, it would be that the presence of oxygen is the absence of disease. Nothing is more truthful than that statement. There is not a single disease etiological pathway known to mankind that does not have its roots in the absence of oxygen. All cancer ends in an oxygen-deprived environment in an area called hypoxia. All human beings die of the same thing. We all die of hypoxia, lack of oxygen to the, to the brain. And so a lot of what I talk about is how do we get the blood to transport more oxygen? How do we get more oxygen into the body? How do we get more oxygen specifically into something called the mitochondria? Because we know now that aging is a mitochondrial disease. It is a progressive form in a tiny little organelle inside of every cell in your body, about 110 trillion of these, called the mitochondria, which is what powers human beings. And as this starts to marginally decrease in function, this is the genesis of aging. And so when we talk about longevity, anti-aging, you know, optimal wellness, we really have to talk about this little organelle called the mitochondria. And uh, we, we can talk about that today if you'd like. But it was a fascinating career. And the one thing that we also learned was that the majority of the reason why human beings are, are not in, an, in the most optimal condition is that it's not a consequence of aging or their environment or stress. It's a consequence of missing raw material in the human body. Human beings need very specific nutrients, vitamins, minerals, amino acids, in order to thrive. And when you deplete the body of certain raw materials you get the expression of disease. You know, most of your listeners right now, I promise you, are walking around at about 55 to 60% of their true state of normal. They have no idea how good normal really feels, that clean, clear, cognizant, waking energy, that deep delta wave of sleep, that incredible youthful response to exercise, that very alert short-term recall. All of those things is... You know, that's what God meant for us to have. He meant right. for us to thrive. And when we don't have those things, we start to look into our outside environment, and it's rarely coming from our outside environment. In almost every case, it's coming from missing raw material in the human body. And we can find that raw material, replace it, and people thrive in ways they never thought possible. I am Josh Felber. You are watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. 
If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube. 